Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly... Patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Hello, and welcome to Raising Good Humans. I'm Dr. Aliza Pressman, and I am interviewing one of the most influential scientists, as far as I know, of child development itself. (laughs) So I'm so honored to have Edward Tronick, a professor of psychology at the University of Massachusetts and the director of the Child Development Unit at Boston. There is a very famous experiment that I'm going to ask you, Ed, to talk about that has really helped shape how active and interactive the relationship between a parent and a child is um, called the still face. Is that right? Is that accurate? The still face experiment? Right. And so I wanted to start all the way back to that and get to um, how you showed the world about this connection between babies and their parents. And then I would love to talk about the beautiful idea of reconnecting when there's been a disconnect. How does that sound? Just those small topics. That sounds just fine. Okay. Um, if, if I can start, um, the, the still face experiment, which I did about, well, probably more years ago than I, I'd like to remember, but about 35, <laughs> 40, 40 years ago, was an experiment where I was working with um, a wonderful uh, pediatrician named Barry Brazelton. We were looking at face-to-face interactions between mothers primarily at that time and their babies. Um, It was something that really hadn't been looked at before because everyone was concerned about cognitive development. So everybody was looking at babies playing with objects or looking at checkboards. And we were trying to understand what kinds of capacities the infant had for social engagement. And in looking at the back and forth kind of play between mothers and their babies, the uh, sorts of things, by the way, that one can now see on all over on YouTube, what we saw was an, an interaction that looked as if the infant was really active and was able to engage socially. And the observation was, was really critical, but it flew in the face of what everyone was thinking about infants at that time, um, starting with Freud, who said uh, 
babies just have two states, which is sort of quietude and distress. And um, you can go back further to uh, Watson, the famous uh. theorist who said nobody had a mind. Every, everybody was just dealing with reinforcement. And even William James referred to babies as being in a blooming, buzzing confusion. And the cognitive work was showing us that babies really had a lot of capacities, but no one was thinking about social capacities. And so when we were looking at the interaction, it looked as if the infants were active participants, that they were emotionally engaged with their mothers during the interaction. And we did a lot of uh, statistical techniques. It was one of the things I could do to try and look at it, but it wasn't very satisfying. What I wanted to do was to do an experiment because that's the way I had been trained. I had uh, been at the University of Wisconsin with Harry Harlow and uh, in the primate laboratory. So I just came upon the idea of looking at what would happen if the baby was really engaged, if the baby was really doing something, and what would happen if we stopped the mother from doing her normal behavior? And the thought was that if the baby's really responding to the mother, if the baby's processing, responding to the mother's emotions and her actions, that if you stop her from doing it, it'll have an effect on the infant. And really, we weren't, um, or certainly I wasn't really prepared for what we saw because when we did literally the very first mother infant pair who were interacting with one another, that when we asked the mother to not interact with the infant, the infant stopped as if stop, stopping in his tracks. He looks at the mother, tries to figure out what's going on, he makes a smile at the mother, and then he turns away, but he comes back and he tries to get her to respond again. And very quickly, his emotions become sort of sad and negative, uh, but he keeps trying to get her back. And some of the infants, for example, I think it was actually the second infant that we saw in this procedure. This is a baby who kind of collapses in the infancy that he's in. He loses postural control. But even while he's sort of hunched over, he keeps looking back at the mother and he does these half smiles trying to get her back again. Oh, so heartbreaking. What was interesting, while it's very hard for people to watch this, and they, you know, it, it can be seen on YouTube, the mothers while they could see that the baby was distressed by this, were really fascinated because these are three, four, five-month-old infants. They realized, and they, they would say it out loud, oh, the baby really knows me. He really cares about me. As if they, the mothers, didn't know that the baby really cared about them already. So this Aww. is a really... You know, the, the mothers would see it as a negative experience, but they also found it as a really fascinating 
experience because it sure. was kind of what they expected. And then in terms of your question about repairs, what was also amazing was as soon as the mother resumed getting back into the interaction with the infant, getting playful with the infant, they very quickly reconnected um, and were back being playful with one another so that the stress of the still face, and it clearly was a negative experience, could be what we began to talk about it as being repaired even though something negative had happened. So at that time, I was just really happy that I could show that babies were really interacting and that they had social capacities and that they had emotional capacities to engage with the mother. And the first time I showed the videotape was at a conference for the Society for Research and Child Development. It was a conference in Denver. And it was a time where the society was relatively small. So it had maybe three or 400 members. There was a plenary session. And there I am, this pretty newly minted doctoral student, presenting to all my, all the junior and senior colleagues in, in my immediate field in child development. And I show this still face. And the way I showed it was because we couldn't do video was we had taken the video recording I'd made, transferred it to film. And so I was actually showing a 16 millimeter film of the video. Wow. I show the play between the mother and the infant. I show the still face and the baby's reaction to it. And then a very brief recovery play period. And I finished showing the video and the audience is absolutely silent. And if you want to think what the still face might do to mothers, I was just terrorized. I thought, <laughs> I thought this is, I have done something just awful in that I, I was done. My career really was over. And while it seemed like an eternity, it was probably maybe five seconds, they burst into um, they burst into applause. Wow. And then there were a whole other wave of feeling. So it's a really powerful manipulation. And it really, people can see it immediately uh-huh. and they have a, an immediate reaction to it. I have to tell you, I've seen it so many times. I can't. I mean, I've I try to show it as often as possible because I think it's it's very difficult to watch, but it's also incredible. You know, I I go through huge feelings. I think everybody does. Of first, just it's gutting, and then it's so heartening to see the reconnection. And I cannot watch it without all of those feelings to this day. So it's really a magical way to, in a very short couple of minutes, I don't even know if it takes a couple of minutes. It's so short. I just want to reiterate or recommend, or I don't know what the word is, but for if, if you watch this, you can feel in such a quick moment, the power and beauty of that relationship. Go Macro 
is a mother-daughter-owned vegan protein bar company that believes a balanced plant-based lifestyle is key to healthy bodies, sharp minds, and bold spirits. Right now, we really need some healthy snacks. I don't know about you, but I've definitely been indulging in a lot of unhealthy. And Go Macro is available in 16 mouthwatering flavors. Macro bars are packed with 100% plant-based ingredients to fuel your body and mind. And it's important to support small businesses right now. And they make products that have a positive effect on the planet. Everything that they make is simple, high-quality, certified organic, vegan, gluten-free, kosher, non-GMO, clean, raw, and soy-free. So when you're looking for that snack for these very long days, you can get mouth-watering flavors like oatmeal chocolate chip, maple sea salt, blueberry cashew butter, and also they have specific ones that are nut-free so that you can have a nut allergy and still indulge in the bars. And now they have a peanut butter chocolate flavored one, which is really delicious. Not nut-free, but kind of tastes like a treat, uh, even though it's healthy. So you can check out www.gomacro.com and use the promo code HUMANS for 30% off plus free shipping. So if you're looking to stock up on good snacks instead of just indulging in junk, definitely, again, try checking out www.gomacro.com and use the promo code HUMANS for 30% off. I think when adults are watching, there are a couple of things going on. One is it's very provocative of, I think, experiences probably that we've all had as infants or as children or, for that matter, as adults. Yeah. Yeah, some really human feeling where the person you're with is not responding to you, is not acknowledging in some sense your presence. It's a feeling of, it brings up all these old feelings, and I, but I think it's a feeling of kind of not being there and that it provokes the feeling in people, in humans, of a sense of abandonment or a sense of desertion on the part of the other person. Why is this happening? I don't understand what's happening here. Why you who were with me is no longer with me. And I think the other piece of it is that when we're watching it, as opposed to the mothers being actually doing it, when we're watching it, it's provocative of these feelings. And then we feel helpless because we can't do anything. But the mothers who are doing this stuff know that they'll recover. They know that a play interaction will follow and that they'll reconnect with with their baby. So it has a kind of different effect on them. They must really have to trust you. Well, I think when we come to the idea of reparation, um, we can talk about trust and, and how it comes out of that situation. But one thing that 
well, maybe your listeners want, I'm not actually, I was going to say want to try, but I'm not actually recommending this, is we did a study where we had adults role play being a baby or role play being the mother. We gave them instructions together. So there are these two, two individuals. One we're saying, just think like you're a baby. And the other one we're saying, just think like you're um, a mother and that you're interacting with each other. And so they know exactly what it is that's going to happen. And we tell them, we're going to ask you to stop at one point and not respond for a while. And they'll engage with one another. They kind of have a conversation. They're not really acting out in any particular way. And we ask the mother, or the adult who's playing the mother, to stop interacting. And the infant starts to respond and tries to get the mother back. They talk to her. They look at her. They do a lot of the things that that the babies do. And then we stop and they recover. And then we ask them to do a checklist of the emotions that they have. Now, remember, they know what was going to happen. Right. And yet the mothers say, I felt really guilty. I felt really bad for the baby. It made me feel really sad that I couldn't respond and it made me feel helpless. And the babies are saying it made me frantic and angry and really unclear about what was going on. And some of the mothers actually apologized to some of the adults who played the mother, actually apologized to the adult who was playing the baby. And they'd say things like, well, he made me do this. (laughs) or sorry, but it was an experiment. That's why we were doing it. So even though they know what's going to happen, it's provocative of these really powerful feelings. And I think it speaks to really your, you know, what you write, what, what you talk about. It's so fundamental, a human capacity to be connected. In fact, when the connection breaks, I think it's a denial of our being human and a denial of something that is really fundamental to us. So what happens when you discover this? So now we, you know, now this has been something like I, I've never not known about this, right? From, from, this was probably one of the first things that I was taught in graduate school, if not before. What happens as a parent now and as a human being, but we're just just thinking in terms of parents, how do we come mm-hmm. to terms with those moments where because what you're i don't I don't think there's any world where you're saying you're you're not allowed to have a disconnect right that's not possible right. so since we know we're going to have those moments, what are things to take this beautiful research i I say from page to stage because I'm a theater geek, but just the idea of how do we translate that into our everyday interactions with the, right. the the part of it that's positive because I think we know what the negative is which is the too much disconnect um, and what happens is there a way to to talk about that in the context of the everyday interactions that we're having with our children whether they're babies or 25 years old yes I, th- I think there really is and one way to think 
first about the still face is that you've created this disconnection and then the connection is regained or repaired. So it's an experimental manipulation, but we've broken the connection between the adult and the infant. And then we allow them to reconnect and to repair the interaction. And what we see is very quickly in the still face, the mother and the infant um, reconnect with one another and back to playing with one another and they're back to smiling with one another and you know mutually vocalizing. So the kinds of interactions we really like to see. So you can think of it as a disconnection and then a repair of the disconnect. And what we found when we looked at the typical, the ongoing playful interactions between parents and infants, we actually saw a kind of similar sort of thing taking place. A lot of the characterizations of mother-infant interactions in many ways, I think, are kind of romanticized. We talk about them <laughs> a dance. Um, sometimes yes. Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers. <laughs> you know, everything is perfect. You never make a misstep. I think uh, it actually comes a little bit from the Madonna and child. Mm. The Madonna and the baby Jesus are always so shown as, you know, so connected with one. Right. Gazing lovingly into each other's eyes. That's right. Exactly. Um, but in fact, what happens in the interactions, and at first I didn't really quite believe this because I would talk about interactions between mothers and infants as being synchronous, being a dance, being coordinated. But when we look carefully at them, what we saw was that there'd be a an interaction where, say, mother and infant are vocalizing to each other, they're smiling with each other, and then maybe the baby would look away or the mother would get distracted, so there'd be a disconnection between them, and then they would get back together. And what we found was that only, on, on average, only about 30% of the time was there actually a matching between what the infant was doing, and what the mother was doing. And the rest of the time, there were these disconnections taking place. But in general, none of the, there was no interaction that was 100%. I can assure you that. You know, the highest percentages were maybe double that. And even then, the percentage of time that really one is in synchrony. So a better metaphor than Ginger Rogers and Fred Astaire is probably, um, well, probably the way I dance. <laughs> you know, dancing with my wife, we're in sync for about, you know, three steps. As soon as I take the pleasure of being in sync with her, immediately I trip out of it. Please right? <laughs> don't bump into her. And then we work together and then we reestablish matching. And then we fall out of matching again. Now, probably she could be in sync all the time, but I, I can't. <laughs> and mothers and babies can't be in sync all the time. Just think the baby's immature, 
he takes in information much more slowly than the mother does. The mother's doing these fairly complicated sorts of things. So mothers and babies are always moving from what I call matching states to mismatching states and back to matching. Now, think what it means in the still face when you go from the disconnection of the still face to matching. What's happening for the baby? That reparation is going from a negative state, you reconnect, and you now move into a positive state. So you begin to learn, oh, I can experience one feeling, and then with this person, I can change that feeling. I can go from negative to positive. I also, with this person, can figure out a way when we get out of sync, how to get back together again. I learn different ways of coping. Another thing is I can learn how to trust this person because when things are out of sync, when we're mismatching, in the still face, I've learned I can get back together again. But now think about the regular interaction in these much smaller mismatches. And what happens is when we repair these mismatches, which last three, four, five, six seconds, and that's all. And then they get repaired. I'm going from a negative to positive state. I'm learning to trust this person. If I'm a baby, I'm feeling like I took care of this. I'm okay in this. I, I know how to cope with this kind mm-hmm. of thing. So you, the baby's actually developing some sense of resilience. So for me, the messiness of interactions allows for the the development in the infant of trust, coping, of being able to to control their emotions and to recognize the sort of special nature, the attachment that this infant has with this particular person. And it really leads to a very special kind of connection between them. And you're saying that it's, it's not even just that it's not possible to have that 100% or even 70% or 60% of a perfect Fred and Ginger dance, but rather that in those moments of it not matching perfectly, your child is benefiting and developing a trust and a strength and an ability to cope because there are these experiences, these smaller, safe experiences of going into a, a different state of, of distress yes. and then being okay. That's so, um, especially when you're a new parent, but I think all parents go through this at, at all ages when you feel like you've had a disconnect that was just, I can't tell you how many times people have said, did I just screw up my kid? Mm-hmm. This one interaction, and and I and so your work is so powerful for those just everyday experiences. But what I would love to ask you, which is very unique to where we are right now in this strange time where everybody is staying home and really anxious and on heightened stress, a lot of people are wondering, well, now should I be having perfect making? perfect interactions at all times where I'm stuck in the house and, and don't know how to, you know, make every moment magic for my kid. And also I'm kind of getting tired of this and dealing with the outside stress of the state of the world. Is, 
Can, is there something that you can say about this? I'm, I'm laughing a little bit because <laughs> my daughter, who has four children, so she's given us, she's had four of my grandchildren. Wow. <laughs> and, um, you know, they're cooped up and she's saying that of greater danger to her children right now, who range in age from six months to 10 years, 11 years of age, that the greater danger to them is their mother, That's their, <laughs> the virus. Exactly. I, I, she is not alone in that feeling. Right. Uh, so I thought um, we should hear from you on this one. Well, I think it's a, a hard situation for everyone to deal with. We're, we're at some level not typically used to this kind of, you know, constant presence of all our children and being locked up and not being able to engage in their typical activities. But I think what is, again, what's most critical is that there are periods of time where you're both really sharing something for some period of time. And even during those periods of really positive time where you're sharing things, you're going back and forth from the matching to the mismatching. And then there are breaks. So there's a kind of messiness that takes place. But the messiness is, again, what allows for figuring out something new about each other, figuring out something Mm. that we can do together that we haven't been able to do together before. And it also, given that it's messy, it also provides the opportunity for repairing the interaction. Just like in, you know, two minutes of face-to-face play with a baby, right. one, one can think about kind of the larger course of the day. And maybe, maybe this will speak to the parents, because uh, I think it's in, a obvi- it's in some ways more obvious. With um, Sue Johnson, who's a couples therapist, she and I have uh, made a a video where we talk about how this kind of matching, mismatching, repair sequence takes place in adult couples' relationships. And we, we had some actors play it out. But people like John Gottman have actually studied this mismatch and repair mm-hmm. in couples. And I think what, what makes for the strongest relationship, and people can just think about this for themselves, is that it's those relationships where even when there's a really negative thing that's happened between you, both of you know that you'll be able to repair it. You may not speak to each other for a day or two or just be angry with each other or whatever. You know, that sort of silence that you greet your partner when. <laughs> Things have really gone awry. Um, but both of you are fully aware that you will be able to overcome that. And I think that is at the base of the trust in the relationship and the intimacy in the relationship. And it grows out of all those other times you and your partner were able to bump into one another and repair it. Mm-hmm. Really, you build up this knowing that you'll be safe with this person. When that doesn't happen, 
when you don't have that kind of experience, then those mismatches lead to breaks in the relationship and lead to the coming apart of relationship. And here we are, we're, we're all trapped, so to speak, at home with someone we absolutely love, hopefully, and adore. But, you know, how many hours in a day can you spend together? I adore being at home with my wife right now. But there are moments <laughs> that just don't. No, we're actually perfect. We never have that happen. <laughs> well, you guys are the exception. <laughs> Yes, we are the exception. And when that exception happens, we manage to figure out the repair. It gives us a sense that, okay, we can do it. We're all right. We'll work it out. We, we know how to deal with this. And parents are doing that with their children all the time. And it is really challenging when you have to do it with such density and constraint already coming into play. And yet we'll all get really good practice so that our kids hopefully can grow up with that practice for their adult relationships. So they can have that, oh. I, that experience that you're talking about with your wife, right? Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, one of the things that you see in a lot of patients or clients that we see as therapists is, and a lot of people say this, is person who says, I can't control my feelings. I can't change my feelings. Someone who's really stuck in being angry or someone who's stuck in a kind of sadness or frustration. And they say, well, I'm not able to change that feeling. I think that that stuck quality grows out of a lack of experience early on in development where there was the possibility of experiencing something negative and then repairing it. And the repair goes from a really negative feeling to a positive feeling. And hopefully that's something that occurs really throughout development and into adulthood, that experience of moving from something that seems so problematic or even painful and then moving into something, into a feeling which is really very different, very positive, and again feels connected to that other person. And I think that connection is the humanness that you're talking about. Raising, you know, raising our children to be available for that kind of connection when they're five years old and when, you know, when they're 25. Thank you for listening. And if you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe, rate and review. I'm thinking of everyone and hope you are staying healthy and keeping others safe. <laughs>